Welcome to our afternoon policy discussion on energy policy. I know many of you are very interested in hearing what our illustrious panel has to say about this topic. But before we begin, I do have a very public confession to make. As many of you know, I'm on the board of directors of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, and our fearless leader, Dr. John Duke Anthony, runs our board meetings very much like the Shura Consultative Councils. He consults all of us on particularly the Policymakers Conference. And the confession that I have to make to you today is that I had something a little bit to do with the title of the conference here. And I know many are trying to figure out what Arab-U.S. relations amidst transition with inconstancy actually means. So I'm here to actually try to help everyone figure that out. As I was telling a friend of mine, I am a trained lawyer and actually practiced law for a few years. So as a result of that, I think very much as an outline. I think of things as very logical. And so to me, what is going on in the Arab world, this transition and yet constancy, must be figured out. There must be a solution to all of this, especially when it comes to energy dynamics. What are the implications of the transitions that are going on in Libya, in Tunisia and Egypt, in Yemen and Syria? and particularly in U.S. energy policy, whether that's a second term or whether there's a new administration here in America. What are the implications of constancy within global energy policy? Whether it continues to be the number one priority of the United States, which our policy interests are ensuring a stable and secure supply of energy resources from the Arab world, What is going on within the global market? Does it continue to be constant in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, in Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman? So here today, I am proud to have a panel who will discuss many of these issues from their rich careers. To begin with, we have Mr. James Lejeune, who is the president of Chevron's Middle East and North Africa division. Within constancy, Mr. Lejeune's career began with Texaco as a civil engineer in 1973. He rose to several management positions within Texaco around the world, and his transition was when Chevron Texaco merged, and he quickly rose up in the management structure to his present position today, where he serves as the president of Chevron's Middle East and North Africa division. We will then hear from Mr. John Hoffmeister. John's constancy is he served in key leadership positions in the corporate world and then rose to the president of Shell Oil Company, where he conducted a groundbreaking 18-month, 50-city tour across the United States to discuss global energy challenges. His transition was in 2008, where he transitioned from Shell to become the founder and chief executive of a 501c3 nonprofit called Citizens for Affordable Energy, which is dedicated to public policy, education, and energy issues. We will then be delighted to hear from a good friend of mine, Frank Verastro, and his constancy is 30 years of experience in energy policy issues both in the United States government at the White House, at the Department of Interior and the Department of Energy, and senior management positions in the corporate world, including Tosco and Pennzoil. Frank's transition occurred in 2003, where he took over the helm as the um, senior vice president and director of energy and national security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of the most premier policy think tanks on energy issues here in Washington, D.C. And finally, but certainly not least, we are so delighted to have His Excellency Mohammed bin Abdullah al-Rumehi, the ambassador from Qatar, as our commentator for our panel. 
His Excellency's constancy was actually for over 20 years he served in the Qatari Armed Forces and rose to the ranks as a major general. His transition was into the career diplomatic service for the state of Qatar, where he served as ambassador in France, Belgium, Luxembourg, the European Union, and now he is serving as the Qatari ambassador here in the United States, and we are honored to have him on this panel. Thank you. Mr. Lejeune. Well, thank you, Randa, and it's a pleasure to be here today, especially since this year's conference theme is a perfect fit for Chevron. Because if there's one thing that we've learned in more than 130 years in business, it's focusing on the long term while managing transitions. Throughout the world, individuals, governments, and even names of countries may change, but the world will continue to need energy, and it's our job to provide it, not only consistently, but affordably and safely regardless of the inevitable transitions that are occurring around us. All right. Thank you. I guess the best way to illustrate this is to tell you about my first assignment in the Middle East. When I arrived in Kuwait, the fires were still burning in the oil fields, and I was sent there to help Chevron reestablish its production in the partition zone between Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. At that time, Chevron had already been in the partition zone for over 40 years. But our production had been completely shut in due to the war. Not only did we reestablish our production, but we increased it to above pre-war levels. Now, 20 years later, we're still operating there. And we plan to be there another 30 years. In fact, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has trusted us as the only foreign producer in the kingdom since our grandparent SoCal first discovered oil in 1938. Our partners know that we're in it for the long term. The uncertainty that comes with world politics is not a reason for Chevron to stay out of or to leave a country. We consistently invest wherever oil and gas resources are, <coughs> provided the contract terms, the laws, and the regulations provide for an economically attractive return. And it's a good thing that we make these investments. As the world population grows, so will energy demand. By 2035, the world's population is estimated to grow to 8.5 billion people. That's the equivalent of adding the population of China and the United States combined. Accordingly, energy demand is expected to increase by roughly 40% during that same time frame. That's the equivalent of the current consumption in the entire Asia-Pacific region plus the Middle East combined. We believe that natural gas and oil will provide the bulk of that energy through innovation, technology, fueled by consistent investments. With this combination of innovation, technology, and consistent investment, it has enabled global reserves of oil and natural gas to grow more than 130% since 1980. That's the equivalent of 1.4 trillion barrels of oil equivalent. By the way, that's over 100 billion barrels of oil equivalent, more than we consumed in the same time frame. So much for peak oil. Along the way, the industry has consistently introduced technology breakthroughs that have been truly transformative. In the early 1950s, our industry could only drill in 100 feet of water to total depths of about 5,000 feet. Today, we can drill in water depths greater than 10,000 feet to total depths of greater than 35,000 feet. That has dramatically impacted the production of deep water areas like the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, where our production has grown from a 2% share. Our crude oil production in the deep water Gulf of Mexico has grown from a 2% share in 1990 to greater than 20% share today. The latest technology breakthrough has unlocked U.S. gas resources. A decade ago, the U.S. was so concerned about the future supplies that the industry began building LNG import terminals. In fact, at one time, 47 terminals were permanent. But by combining hydraulic fracking with horizontal drilling, we've come up with a way to economically extract gas from shale and other type formations. 
So since, uh, since 2000, the U.S. gas production from shale has increased 17-fold to 7 trillion cubic feet of gas a year. That's enough gas to power all of the natural gas plants that, power, that provide electricity for U.S. households last year. Now some companies are operating in the U.S. are looking to export LNG. Others like Chevron are moving to apply to technology globally. The result has been an increase in natural gas and oil resources because we applied the technology to both oil and gas reservoirs. Advances in tight oil and deep water production have helped propel the U.S. crude oil production to its highest level in 14 years. The Middle East has been and will continue to be a key energy producer. But technological advances mean other countries can bear the burden. It also means that additional resources will be unlocked in the Middle East. And this will be reflected in future investment decisions. The IEA estimates nearly 40 trillion U.S. dollars of investment between now and 2035 will be required to meet the growing demand. Chevron is among those companies investing heavily in the future. Our 2012 capital and exploratory budget of $32.8 billion is focused primarily on LNG in Western Australia, U.S. Deepwater Gulf of Mexico, as well as shale opportunities globally. But Chevron, like all investors, has limited resources. So we will consistently apply our resources where it makes the most economic sense. We'll apply them in places that understands that the terms for investment are mutually beneficial, then investments are sustainable for the long term. We'll apply them in places that understand that a balanced partnership increases the value of the enterprise for all parties. Our long-term partners understand this. They trust us to consistently put our experience, our technology, and our people to work for them to maximize the value of their resources. That's why we remain partners, decade after decade, despite the short-term political changes that every country experiences. That's how we constantly supply affordable energy to our customers. Provide constancy in world in transition, that's what we do. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. John, you've done it again. Thank you so much. I agree with the comments we just heard. And I would submit that the good news is the world is not running out of oil. But the bad news is we're still not going to have enough, particularly in the next 20 years. The next 10 years, in my view, will see severe shortages as and when we need oil because we remain a hundred percent or near a hundred percent oil-based transportation and as long as we are so monopolizing the transportation industry with a single fuel such as oil we're not going to make the demand that the world will need the numbers are awesome ladies and gentlemen in the year 2005, China needed about 5 million barrels a day. 2011, 10 million barrels a day. 2015, more likely 15 million barrels a day. India, in the same time frame, from 2 to 4, more likely to 7. The United States remains the world's largest consumer and in a full economy basis needs about 20 million barrels a day. When you start adding up all of the demands of the world under normal economic growth of, say, 3 to 4% globally, there simply will not be enough, despite the best efforts of committed, dedicated, state-owned oil companies, despite the best committed efforts of independent oil companies, international oil companies, ladies and gentlemen, it's my view that there simply will not be enough for one reason. The politics of energy will not permit it. The politics of energy will not permit, for example, these United States from truly developing its own domestic natural resources to grow the U.S. economy. It hasn't for the last 40 years. 
And the likelihood of that changing dramatically or quickly is as near zero as I believe we can be. In addition, the geopolitics of energy broadly, but the geopolitics of oil more specifically, get in the way all the time. When we see an accident of fate result in the suspension of operating permits in certain countries around the world, or when we see the kind of threats that may exist, verbal or otherwise, that send shockwaves through the oil prices, and when we see these oil prices operate in a very psychological, fearsome way to disable economic growth projections of countries that would otherwise be able to grow faster, again, come back to the United States, the failure of this country to come to grips with its own domestic production, has put the wet blanket of high gasoline prices on the overall economy so that disposable income is simply not there when it needs to be. And the average family, the median family in this country making $52,000 a year facing $4 gasoline or higher or slightly lower simply has to make choices on where they will spend their money and it affects the overall negative impact on the economy which we've been seeing four out of the last four years. And when you keep trying to do the same thing over and over again, without changing what you're doing, you know what you get. The same result. Nothing. So we have to think differently. And I would submit that the beginning of thinking differently starts with questioning why, with all the technology, why, with the entire natural resource base that we have around the world, why, with all of the creative entrepreneurial capacity that exists in this world, do we allow ourselves to be monopolized by oil for transportation? We heard the example of Qatar Airlines using GTL for aviation fuel. Now, that's a nice competitor to oil because the gas comes from a different place. And there's a whole lot of gas. We have the opportunity, and in this country we've heard of the Pickens Plan for many years now. No action has been taken. But the Pickens Plan involves using compressed natural gas for trucking. I submit to you that here's a plan by the numbers that would impact the United States of America, which would put a relaxing effect on the entire world that needs oil from those countries that have it in those countries that don't on an ever-increasing basis. And it's not that we're running out of oil. It's that we don't have enough. So let's take the world's largest economy, a country that has more natural resources, more oil and gas natural resources than it will ever need in its history, looking ahead, and let's develop a concrete plan that we can execute over the next 10 to 12 to 15 years to take the burden off the rest of the exporting countries so that other things can happen as well, whether it's economic growth, whether it's political stability, whether it's greater use of education and development of other industries because things are more affordable when the pressure is off the oil price. The plan for the United States is very simple. We used to produce 10 million barrels a day. We're down to six. We were down to five. We're now up to six. If you count all the liquids, it's up around eight or nine. But you can't turn those liquids into gasoline or diesel. So let's go back to 10. Let's go back to 10 million barrels of oil in this country. We know where it is. We know how to produce it. All that prohibits us from producing it is the politics of energy. Can't we get beyond that? Then let's displace 2 million barrels a day of imported oil with CNG for trucking. We know where the natural gas is. We just heard how much we're producing, so much more. Let's convert some of that to CNG for trucking. Displace 2 million barrels a day. Let's go further than that. Let's displace another 3 million barrels a day of imports by converting natural gas produced domestically to methanol. All we need is a flex fuel engine. All we need is some distribution points, some more manufacturing for methanol. We know how to do that. 
And we can displace 3 million barrels a day of imports, putting the U.S. on the equivalent of 15 million barrels a day production in an economy, full economy, I'm assuming, that needs 20. Higher mileage vehicles gets rid of another 2 million barrels a day of imports, followed by working closely with our neighbors to the north and the south in this country, Mexico and Canada, to make up the difference under the North American Free Trade Agreement. Very simple formula-based solution to the incredible pressure that the United States of America puts on the global exporting countries to make sure that we get what we want. Now, the reality is, over the next five to ten years, we won't get what we want because there's not going to be enough, and China, quite wisely, has a cash-for-oil program. Putting cash in the hands of state-owned oil companies contractually mortgaged with oil so that oil goes to China over the coming years, not to the global trading pool. China takes care of China while the rest of the world sees a setback in what's available to them. And if we go around the reservoirs of the world, and here's where I worry about the next 10 to 20 years, Brazil has great promise, and Brazil will have great promise for a long time to come. Because the metallurgy, the metallurgy necessary to produce material oil in Brazil is not ready yet. The science of the metallurgy in the pipes and the pumps and the drill bits is not ready yet for the pressure and the temperature and the caustic nature of the reservoir. The Arctic has great promise and will for some period of time. Socially, politically, there are great barriers in turning, into an Arctic, turning the Arctic into a production center. We will move slowly, slowly into the Arctic. I think we can. I think we should. But it's not going to happen overnight. Other geopolitical issues, we know the tensions in the Middle East are what they are. And whether it's Iraq, whether it's Iran, whether whoever it is, those tensions are, it's unclear how the future will play out over the coming years. And to count on increased oil production under the terms and conditions which exist today are questionable. And the South China Sea is questionable. And so all the new potential basins go to East Africa. East Africa, tremendous promise. And that promise will be there for quite some time. The financial infrastructure, the technical infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, the human resource infrastructure doesn't exist in East Africa for any material production. So while we continue to focus on the oil we know, we face the annual dilemma of decline. Five to six percent per year decline, which we have to make up every year. That's five or six million new barrels a year just to stay even. And as we hear about the future demand and the future population growth, we need even more. So my worry, ladies and gentlemen, is getting past the politics of energy, first of all, to do in this country what can and should be done, under whatever political leadership it takes to get it done. Because when Americans stand in gas lines, or when Americans pay too high a price, they punish the political process and the political actors. We're headed there if we stay on our current course, and we have the consequences of all the insecurities of economic insecurity, energy insecurity, and national insecurity at the same time. There's a remedy. We should follow the remedy. Thank you very much. Okay, so silly me, I didn't think this was going to be a political session. Um, I appreciate John's points, and there's some uh, extremely valid points. Um, so keeping with the script and the theme of transition and constancy, it just strikes me when I, and when I look out in the Middle East and I look at the changing landscape. And there's a lot of validity in what both John and Jim have said, um, because as we sit here today, the world's energy picture is shifting. Um, we, we know the situation in Syria and how it can overspill the borders and affect the region. We know that Libya has moved forward and then moved a bit backward. We're a year and a half out from the Arab Spring. Things are still a bit unsettled. Great opportunity, but we're not quite there yet. And then we have a defiant Iran, um, and we know what the sanction system has been. In that context, I would argue that it, it, over the last two years, when you talk about foreign policy and the intersection of energy, had it not been for the dramatic increase in U.S. production 
and the increase by the GCC countries, uh, especially Saudi Arabia, we would have not been able to put Iran sanctions in place and have an impact. Um, lower global demand rates also helped here because in a high demand growth, we would still have been stressed. But echoing the transition theme, uh, let me, my three topics today that I actually wanted to touch on was this new energy landscape, um, the role of unconventionals, and then talk about the intersection of energy policy and foreign policy. The new energy landscape for me, and it, I think it's the same for, for both Jim and John, is that we're seeing both on the production side and the demand side, right? So the new demand is now coming from the non-OECD countries, where 15 years ago it was predominantly from the developed world. And what that does, we're actually finding new supply centers in the non-OECD as well, but it makes data collection, like in things like the IEA, where the non-OECD members uh, do not participate as much. We see new sources of supply, and this is both in fuels and suppliers. We see new players. We see old players in new roles. And then that begs the question of geopolitics and new alliances. With respect to the role of unconventionals in frontier resources, I think both John and Jim have laid that out. The fact that we can drill six-mile wells now, and from a home computer, we could drill from here and hit something under the capital the size of a chair. This is phenomenal. We're doing extended-reach lateral wells. And for all the good news on the shale gas side, because this is source rock, it's got zero geologic risk. We don't have to wait for it to percolate up and get caught in fractures and stratigraphic zones. And for the tight oil, the fact that we've been able to take hydraulic fracturing and lateral wells, um, coupled with higher prices and new access, it's just been a phenomenal occurrence. If we were here five or six years ago, we would have been talking about peak oil, and I was never a fan of peak oil. I always thought that there was a lot more resource out there. But at these prices, it's now accessible with this technology. And that makes a world of difference. And I think the opportunity pool has just gotten larger. So for all the talk about the regulations in the United States, companies are coming back to the United States, and for good reason. We have market structure. We have fiscal terms. We have a regulatory system that people may not like, but they certainly know. We have good schools. We have clean air, clean water, and security. So it's about a whole range of things when you make those kind of investments, because these are long-lived investments. And the other piece of that on the unconventionals is that we're finding these structures to be stacked. So when you look at the Marcellus in Pennsylvania, and I don't want to just be domestic here, but below the Marcellus is the Utica, below the Utica is the Ordovician, below the Ordovician is the Mahogany. You can be in these zones for 80 years now. This is like a manufacturing process. So there's a great opportunity, and John's absolutely right. The rhetoric around energy independence is, I guess, the third thing that I want to strike at. Um, some people have taken this notion of how fast we can be energy independent. We're 80% self-sufficient now, and John's absolutely right that our Achilles heel is still oil demand because our transportation sector is about 94% uh, dependent on liquid petroleum fuels. There's a reason for that is because the energy content and the mobility, the able to store and move it around, is better than anything else we've got, including natural gas, including ethanol, uh, including electricity depending on how you derive the electricity. And then we have the notion of climate change, which I think is actually going to be the bigger dilemma going forward, because as you perpetuate a fossil fuel world that we didn't even know about five, six, seven years ago, where 30 years as a bridge is fine for the environmental community if you want to transition to lower carbon fuels and new alternatives, but if you've got a 100-year supply or more of natural gas, and we're talking 4,000 trillion cubic feet of potential resources in the United States and maybe 10,000 trillion cubic feet in all of North America. If you've been in this business any length of time, this is infinity, this is 10,000 trillion cubic feet, right? So things are, are changing there too, but the Middle East and other places around the world also have these resources. So there's a lot more to be had if you perpetuate that fossil fuel future going out 50 years, 80 years, 100 years, what does that do to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, which even the Defense Department views as at least a threat multiplier. And I would argue in some places, if you look at uh, famine, drought, um, disease, crossing borders, when you look at, at water needs, um, that sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East is, is particularly susceptible to some of the climate change threats. So on the independent scheme, I, I totally agree. For the last 40 years, U.S. policy here has been predicated on the dual pillars 
of resource scarcity and growing demand. On the oil side, we now may be looking at flat demand and this enormous resource base that we just don't know what to do with. But it's going to take looking at the laws that we have on the books. We are looking at exports, for just as an example. There's four statutes that govern exports in this country. One of them is EPCA, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, that goes back to 1975 when we were in a different time. And it was in reaction to the oil embargo that we heard about earlier. This will clearly be a boon to the United States. It's good for economic growth, for jobs. It enhances U.S. and global energy security because it adds incremental barrels around the world. And this is a good thing. So it adds to the global oil pool. But to some people it applies, implies a sense of isolation, that we're living in a bubble. And while this polls well, I don't think it's good for U.S. consumers. It's not good for global consumers, not good for international trade or for America's geopolitical alliances. Oil, good or ill, is a globally traded commodity, and gas perhaps, while regional now may become a globally traded commodity. And despite the campaign rhetoric, prices are determined in global settings, not at any president's whim. And unless we're contemplating export restrictions and or price controls, I don't think that's a good way to go. When we talk to our allies around the world, and it includes producers in the Middle East, it also includes the Japanese and the Europeans, they get spooked by some of this rhetoric. And so even as we pivot towards Asia, we'll need to maintain a presence and relations in the Middle East because of the peace process, because of nuclear ambitions, because of trade route protection, anti-terrorism, and new nations and powers emerging. In that context, I think the reference to the unreliable Arab suppliers that we've heard in opposition to U.S. exports, I think is both unhelpful and unwise policy. As Secretary Clinton recently said in a speech at Georgetown, energy matters to America in foreign policy terms for at least three reasons. And I agree with these. It rests at the core of geopolitics because at its core, energy is an issue of wealth and power. It's a source of both cooperation or conflict. And the U.S. does and will have a continuing interest in resolving disputes over energy, keeping markets stable, and ensuring that nations don't use their energy or proximity to trade routes to force others into bending to their will. Energy is essential to powering our economies and others, and the choices we make also impact our environment. And that may pose a bigger dilemma down the road in terms of development and political stability. And even with additional resources, the U.S. is not and cannot become an island when it comes to energy. And I think that's a good thing, because we're all in this together at the end of the day. So let me leave it at that and uh, look forward to the minister's comments and then uh, take some questions. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Good morning, everybody here. <clears throat> I will start by thanking uh, my dear friend, Dr. Anthony, for inviting us every year to come to this very highly respected uh, gathering and the most important subject to us all here in, in Washington and in the Arab world is our relations with the United States of America. And I would like to start by uh, wishing happy Eid to all uh, of you here, especially the Muslim uh, people. Um, I was listening to uh, the discussion here and uh, wondering whether I, I, I will have to give a Middle Eastern point of view or just comment on what's happening. But let me say this, that uh, the energy in the world is mostly divided in a three sector plus. So it is coal on one third, gas on the other third, and natural and uh, crude oil in the third parts, and only 10% on new energy. And this is already something that gives us a whole picture about what's the consumption in this, uh, in the actual uh, uh, industrial uh, countries or even the productors. Uh, production countries like the Gulf countries or United States, going to be to Brazil, Africa, North Africa, and also uh, part of Asia. It is uh, good news also to see that we are having, again, natural gas, crude oils, and coal for one century also. So that is very 
very much insurance for all industries that at least we are insured having energy for 100 years. This is very important and uh, we have to look at it seriously because that is the insurance we are looking at. Without this insurance, we will not know how to go rather to deviate to nuclear or to go and pay very high price for the new energy. Again, uh, what we observe here that the divisions between a producer and consumer, which is continuous, and to tell you the truth, it's very difficult to say to the producer, get the price down. The price is open market, it's up to everybody to get it down. And we will not get it down because of the reason that we might continue another 30 years having the same per capita that we had in 1980, which is not normal also as a producer of very wanted, very much wanted material. And which means that if we don't have energy, you don't have cars. If we don't have energy, we don't have chairs, we don't have planes, we don't have electricity, we don't have lights, we can't gather here also, we can't travel. We can't eat sometime with this number of a human in the walls, as our friends here, the manager, the, sorry, the president of Shell Company has cited. So it is also obligation toward our development in Middle East, as this title here uh, says, that we have to develop Middle East also. It's not a matter of selling the crude oil on 10 or $17. That's not going to happen. Otherwise, it's another crisis in another part of the world. But what we can do is to partner together, to work together. You said it very rightly. We have to work it out. How much we can make America more stable in energy? How much we can make the world more stable in energy? Is to invest together. Rather, we invest in pattern or we invest in new technologies that can produce in bigger figures of uh, rather oil in barrels or gas in cubic meters or even tons of coals. We have to work together and to invest together. When I heard about the shell gas here in America, I start looking at it. I said, well, there is an opportunity for me to invest, maybe. So we start thinking about investing, and we went inside to search, and we find out that there is big difficulties. It's not normal. They don't have the same need that we have in the Middle East, that, okay, please welcome and invest here with us. We will get a profit together. You have the pattern, you have the technology, and let's produce it together. But once we come here, although there is a need of investing money into the shell gas and make it more uh, of uh, energy insurance for the United States, we discover that some of the states, they just have a socialist law inside that nobody can go and invest at all. Foreign investor, impossible. Open market, no way. This is, this is the, the, the question here. So I would like to, to encourage uh, my friend here that we have to create more partnerships and serious way of dealing, of coming together to ensure more stability in the energy market. Because still we are very far away from the new energy. A new energy is very little. If it is 10%, that's mean rare. I was sitting in a chair in 1980 in France studying something, and as a uh, crude oil producer country, I was very scared that the new energy is going to replace the oil, and I will not see the French or the American coming back to the Middle East. But then, only 30 years after, I discovered that's only 10%. That means still 10%, and it will go on like this. So, um, on, on this regard, I believe partnership, even to go to East Af of Africa to produce, Your Excellency, or even to go to the South Sea of China, or to dig in Philippines, where they have still oil and gas opportunities there, let's partner together, and let's establish uh, a wider area of uh, sec security in the energy field. So I will not uh, continue that much. I think investment is very important uh, issue in the energy, and you and us, we have the money, we have the cash, maybe we are 
the biggest holder of cash now, and we can invest together. We are ready to invest together and to partner together, all the Middle, Middle Eastern country and United States of America. Thank you very much. Terrific. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Well, that is a perfect segue into the first question, which I would like to address to all of our panelists, um, because I think there's a part of this that all of you can certainly answer. In keeping with the theme of constancy and transition, what will the future of foreign investment in the energy sector in the MENA region look like? Will we continue to see those large-scale cooperative efforts, or will the companies be more hesitant to do so? And then as the moderator, I'd like to ask sort of the follow-up question, which is what about U.S. renewable energy technology development married to the investment resources in the MENA region? So as many of you know, I think the United States has the best new de development of renewable energy technologies, but we don't have the financial resources to bring those to market. And ladies and gentlemen, the U.S. government doesn't either. I think, the, as you heard the ambassador mention, many in the MENA region in the state-owned government sectors and also in the private family cooperative efforts do have the financial resources to make those investments. Can we figure out a way to do that in the renewable energy sector? Frank? So let me take the renewable piece first. I actually think that there's a number of countries that are already going down that path. You know, the fact that Saudi Arabia, when you look at crude burn, uh, example in the summer, of why you would use $100 a barrel crude oil for uh, electricity and uh, desalinization when you can use uh, potentially natural gas or solar um, or maybe small-scale nuclear. So, that, I mean, there's a number of options, and I think countries are considering that, and I think the U.S. government and the private sector is working with them along those lines. In terms of investment in the MENA region, um, so when I was at Pennzoil, we always we had three or four things that we would look at before we invest, right? So there's there's geologic risk, there's technical risk, there's commercial risk, there's geopolitical risk, and every company does it along the same lines with, with some variations. When you can find an area that has um, maybe low numbers on the other risk factors, you're willing to accept a high rate of geopolitical risk. If it's a technologically complex and expensive well going in and the market's not there, there's somewhat of a, a, a less interest uh, going forward in terms of investment because you always have to make sure your portfolio is balanced. You have some high risk, high reward, some low risk. Um, but the, the bigger piece to me is that especially as you look forward, uh, I actually think that, that on the unconventional resources now and with the technology applications that the opportunity pool has gotten larger. And it's not just a sense of, of having oil or gas in the ground anymore that spurs investment. There's a whole second list. So if you rank countries based on organic content and what they have in reserves, you get one look at the world. If you do fiscal terms, uh, security, quality of life, uh, a bunch of other things, governance issues going forward, that second list in some ways inverts the first list in terms of having a drill-ready prospect. So I think it's actually going to vary country to country. Go ahead. Okay, I'll, I'll do the same. I'll take uh, the reverse as well. We, as you know, we are investing in, in uh, solar energy in Qatar at the Science and Technology Park. We're, we're testing solar panels to see what panels would work best in the Middle East region. We're also looking at uh, solar to steam projects in the U.S. So we are working closely with the Middle East to see how we can help them capture some of that uh, natural uh, sunshine that they have that helps to convert uh, uh, into energy. On the second point, uh, I agree with Frank. I mean, we look at uh, we look at the rocks first. I mean, if the rocks have something in it, we'll invest if the terms and conditions. Uh, the contract terms, the laws, and the regulation allow us to make an uh, economically attractive return. We have a large portfolio. We match it against our portfolio. If it fits, we invest. If it doesn't, we move on. From my, from my perspective, I think the geopolitics really are rising to the top of the table. They've always been there, but in, with, the, with, the, with the Arab Spring, with the evidence of the Sunni-Shia divide uh, manifesting itself in so many different ways, uh, with the challenge and the difficulty of particularly Western 
stock market listed companies looking at the assurances that they need from a return to shareholder standpoint, uh, I, I think we're at a period of, of head scratching on how the future of capital deployment moves forward uh, in terms of the big or the mega projects as opposed to perhaps some of the service contracts. Uh, the, the, the value of the international oil company is clearly in the technology uh, and in bringing that technology to bear. But whether there's enough uh, premium or enough so-called rent to earn while sharing that technology under what conditions that may exist for staff and for the overall relationship and the value of the contract, the power of the contract, there, there are some, uh, there's ever more skepticism that we're not at an unsettled period and maybe we should be looking at other investments uh, as, as we look around the world. That's not to say that the geopolitics in other parts of the world are somehow hunky-dory and easy to manage, including right here in the United States of America. There, there, there are some huge disputes in this country over whether fracking will or will not occur. People throwing their bodies in front of equipment to stop fracking from occurring. There's a strong environmental movement that refuses to accept that fracking can be done safely. And, and so this country has its own issues. So the, so the capital expenditure that I think is necessary to deliver product is, is part of the problem. And I think from a Middle East, North Africa standpoint, it's gotten worse in the last 24 months. The outlook going forward is uncertain as could be, uh, given the, the, what we heard in the first remark, set of remarks this morning. Uh, with the role of Europe and the United States and its re reputation in the Middle East. So I, I think we're in a transition period, and there's not a lot of constancy right now with respect to the big spending money. Well, I believe that every country needs income, rather Sunnit or Shiite or Christian or whatever we can give as a color to the geopolitical side of the uh, social and political development, but whatever the result, even what we see today in Iran, Iran still needs to export crude oil so that they can get cash and they can help their social development or at least protect their populations for and in, in, uh, ensure health care and uh, food for about 80 million people. So we are not talking about any country that they will produce oil or energy and they will not sell it out. They need to sell it out. Anybody, the Chinese, if they have more oil, they will sell it out. The Japanese, if they have oil and gas, they will sell it out. And they try because they get the oil and gas for $100 and they sell it in other material for $10,000. It's the same cycle of industry and same cycle of international trade and international business. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't stop there and say that this will not happen because of uh, political development in the Middle East. If this will end, we, we are scared because we don't have experience, but a revolution will take between five and ten years to settle, and we have to work with that. And we are happy to see at least an election after six months in a revolution. Usually that might, this might take ten years and without having any guarantee that we will have election for a president. We have time for one more question. Uh, one more question to all the participants on the panel, and we can't ignore that this is the political season. And, John, I do hear your frustration about the lack of a comprehensive energy policy. So the President of the United States will be elected in about a week and a half, and he has appointed you as the next energy secretary. I'd like to hear one recommendation from each of our panelists, and Mr. Ambassador, you can certainly play along. If the, if the President came to you and said, I need one recommendation on energy policy about how to make sense of all of what is going on in the Middle East. Frank, Secretary Frank. Oh, thank you. Um, one recommendation on what's going on in the Middle East. Energy policy. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> thank you. I'm not going to go beyond that. Um, in terms of energy policy, so I, I think there's two things. So I think uh, assurances that we're in a global market. Um, I think this um, 
Let me roll back. So two years ago, when the OPEC meeting that Minister Naimi talked about being the worst ever, there was some discussion in the U.S. government about how disappointed they were in OPEC. The actual statement that came out was was uh, recognized OPEC as a political institution, but actually then segmented out the GCC countries and Saudi Arabia in particular for being a responsible actor in increasing production when the world's global economy was was going down the toilet. Um, I think that collaborative and cooperative is, is the way to go, and I, I agree with the ambassador. I think uh, we don't know what the the tail is on, on some of these elections and the results. We've seen some of this in Central Asia after the Soviet Union, so we're going to have to ride it out. We need to continue to be engaged, though, and I think that's the most important. And turning our back in isolation is probably the worst thing we can do. Well, first off, I, we would have to have an energy policy to start off with. So, but, I mean, we really don't. But anyway, besides that, um, I would have to say that regardless of whether you're looking at the Middle East or anywhere, when we start talking about energy policy, what we really need to do is look at the cost benefits of all the forms of energy and look for energy security in the United States. It's not about energy independence. It's not about making sure we have enough. It's about energy security and ensuring that we do a cost-benefit relationship on anything that we do relative to energy. Thank you. I think building on those themes, absolutely. The best decision that the next president could make in terms of Middle East respect, peace, and assistance through difficult transitions is to do something courageous for a change with respect to domestic energy production to meet the needs in this country. This country has put such pressure on so many suppliers under so many extreme circumstances, and I can't tell you how many times I've been asked the question, you know, wasn't it, isn't it true that the Iraq war was really about oil? And, and, you know, how do you answer a question like that? And after this morning's discussion of the value of the Iraq war, you could say, well, that was pretty expensive oil, if you accept that thesis. But the real issue is we have lacked the political leadership by Democrats and Republicans in this country to deal honestly, thoughtfully, practically with what it takes to have an energy economy, and from that energy economy, provide a stimulus to the whole rest of the economy through the energy capabilities of this country. And if we don't see presidential leadership, it's not going to happen. Because there are so many ducks out there nibbling. Death by a thousand duck bites is the energy uh, result of what we get in this nation when you don't have a president who leads, and we're now on the eighth one in a row who has not led. Well, it's difficult as a foreigner to give advice to uh, my friends, uh, <laughs> the American government. But in any case, it is uh, just to continue with the same power in exploring uh, oil and gas in America and try to see what is the opportunities and what is the role of the, of the United States or the United States would like to play in the international arena, even by selling shell gas or whatever natural gas to uh, on the on the format of LNG or GTL to uh, China or Japan or other uh, expensive market uh, and ensure at least that we have the American reserve which is a very important uh, security reserve that the United States had established since long time and continue to protect and to ensure thank you Thank you very much. This wraps up our panel on energy policy issues. I hope we've answered many of the questions of transitions with inconstancy, and I thank the panel very much for their very, very positive inputs today. Thank you. Thank you.